Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are your co-hosts for today. Hey, good morning, Brian. How you doing? Good morning, Jeff. Doing well. Thanks. Yeah, Brian and I are in the middle of a multi-part podcast uh, that's examining the teaching of John Calvin, uh, which is commonly known as Calvinism. Uh, this is, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, episode number three, or might even be number four, since I think we did an introduction. Uh, in the uh, first lesson, we learned about, uh, even prior to John Calvin, a man who lived in the 5th century named Augustine. Uh, he took the position that man is born totally depraved, incapable of doing any good at all, uh, to include contributing to his salvation. He argued that salvation is to be found only and exclusively in the power of God's sovereign, unmerited grace. Well, as it turns out, John Calvin uh, embraced those doctrines and promoted them uh, in the 1500s, or starting in the 1500s. And they're often summarized by the term TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, uh, an acronym, which stands for Total Inherited Depravity, unconditional election, or sometimes called predestination, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And so far, we've looked at uh, the first two of those, total inherited depravity and unconditional election, and honestly have found them to be contrary to what the scriptures say. So in today's podcast, uh, we want to move forward to the third of those tenets, that of limited atonement. Hey, Brian, before we actually get in it, into it, did you have any uh, comments you want to make? Well, yeah, just one thought. You know, no doubt all of us are sinful. We know of passages like Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And when you think about that very first lesson as far as uh, in this tulip, total inherited depravity, there's a big difference between all choosing to sin and falling short and us being born in sin and incapable of doing good. And so, you know, I think one of the themes or the threads of truth that we will see through all five of these that I really want to call our listeners' attention to is choice. And if it's something that we cannot prevent ourselves from doing, like there was an old statement, I think in the 70s, the devil made me do it, right? Or once again, if you believe in this concept of you're incapable of doing good, then it kind of, Jeff, gives you a built-in excuse for sinning, right? Whereas the Bible says, no, it's about choice. And so at a fundamental level, it's so important to understand, do you have control over your life or are you inclined to do evil because, oh, by the way, you were born evil? And, and I think that's, that's a good point because in some ways, as you're saying, Calvinism um, I might say minimizes or zeroes out man's role uh, and puts, you know, 100% all on God uh, with nothing man does. Uh, and it's sort of like, you know, tip the scales exclusively toward God, toward his grace, etc. And, and certainly as we'll get into perhaps a little bit later on today, you know, God's grace extended to humanity is, and I, 
hard time finding the right words to describe it. You know, immense, awesome, uh, just, you know, t overwhelmingly wonderful. But that does not mean it's all about grace, uh, grace only. And we'll get into more of that uh, later. So appreciate the uh, appreciate your comments. Yeah, so this morning, let's talk a little bit about this idea of atonement. For those of you that are familiar with the old law, which, you know, in our Bibles is the Old Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as the Old Covenant. So this would be the first covenant that God made with mankind and the laws that were associated with that covenant. And under that covenant, there was something called the atonement. And what was the biggest difference, or one of the biggest difference, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that we live under today, so that would be the Law of Christ, or once again in your Bibles, the New Testament, is that when Jesus died on the cross, the Scriptures teach us that our sins can now be forgiven. Well, under the old law, that was not the case. The sins were not forgiven. They were covered each year. And so what Calvinists attempt to do is bring that to the new covenant that we're under today. And in fact, just as a quick side note, you know, most false religions, if you take a look at what they practice, they often blend elements of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Catholic Church, for instance, is one example of that, where they hold on to several ceremonial elements. You'll see their priests, and they wear robes, and they do a lot of ceremonial things in their worship that are part or elements of the Old Law, but yet they have elements of the New Law as well. And so there's a blending, and a lot of that just comes from a lack of understanding of what the Bible teaches. The Bible's very clear that when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled or completed that old covenant, and through his blood, you'll see in Hebrews, that he brought about this new covenant. And so, going back to Calvinism here, what do Calvinists teach that the death of our Lord accomplished? Was it these things that we were just talking about, or is it something else? Well, the Calvinist believes that the death of Christ was what was what's called limited vicarious atonement. That is, Christ atoned as a substitute and not for all men, but a substitute for his elect people alone. And so one of the other things that we touched on in our previous episodes is how all of these tenets stand or fall together. And so if you believe that God only uh, selected a certain number of people to be saved, then you have to logically go down this path of, therefore, uh, there's only a limited number of people that could be atoned for. Otherwise, the whole doctrine falls apart. And so let's look at a couple of terms here. One is vicarious. So if you're familiar with this term, if you look at a basic dictionary definition, what you'll see that it says is that vicarious means endured or done by one person substituting for another. That's according to the American Heritage Dictionary. Looking at a definition from Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it means performed or suffered by one person as a substitute for another. So once again, they believe Christ atoned as a substitute for God's elect people. So we really have two things we want to consider here, and we'll get more into this as uh, later on in the podcast, and that is, was Christ in fact a substitute? And if he was, or even if he was not, was it just for the elect alone? So now let's look at this term substitute. Merriam-Webster defines this as a person or thing that takes the place or function of another. 
So did Christ die on the cross so that those who were chosen, those who were elect, would not have to die? So those are questions that we want to consider uh, this morning. So the, to the Calvinists, limited atonement means that Christ died as a substitute for man and atoned for the elect and for them only. So, Jeff, I'll hand it off to you next to talk about some definitions, right, of limited atonement from Calvinists, from their own doctrine, if you will. Right. So I've got a, a few quotes here, and they're kind of fairly lengthy. So what I may do is, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of uh, hit various uh, aspects of them. Uh, one of them is related to the concept of uh, satisfaction. Uh, quote, that satisfaction very simply means to do enough or make payment of a certain debt or obligation according to the demand of justice. Uh, continuing the quote, if among men such satisfaction is made, let us say of a debt of $1,000, then as soon as the satisfaction is made, the debt is gone. It has been removed. It is no more. Thus, if satisfaction of the debt of sin is made for any man, then that man's debt of sin and guilt is gone. It is no more. That debt is forever removed. God cannot and does not hold that debt against them anymore in his judgment. Uh, let me just kind of pause there a little bit. Uh, I think a little bit later on in the podcast, we'll get into, if I can remember, Brian, the, the concept of Jesus having died for my sins, past, present, and future. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. And we'll, we'll try to remember to come back to that when, a little bit later on. Uh, continuing on, a quote, such satisfaction can be made only by the free, loving, obedient bearing of the punishment of sin. Bearing of death, bearing of all the agonies of everlasting hell to the very end. Uh, goes on to say, uh, uh, let's see, when that burden of the wrath of God has been borne, when all the vials of God's wrath have been poured out over a man, and he has borne them freely out of love for the sake of love of God and the righteousness of God, then satisfaction has been made. Uh, and that's, you know, again, from their uh, site. Now, it's interesting, and I will get into this when we get to the fifth part of the tulip, the perseverance of the saints, uh, what this doctrine leads to. And this is a quote from, uh, I think, a Baptist source. Do a Christian's sins damn his soul? We take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. A way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, his attitude toward other people, have nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. All the prayers a man may pray, all the Bibles he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, etc., all the laws he may keep, uh, will not make his soul one whit safer, and all the sins he may commit from adultery or from idolatry to murder will not make his soul any more in any more danger. The way a man lives has nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. End quote. And again, we'll talk more about that when it comes to perseverance of the saints or what we sometimes call once saved, always saved, which is basically what they're saying. How, you know, once, once you're saved, it doesn't matter how you live. Continue on with some other definitions. Uh, substitution. Uh, here's a quote. Since therefore we are unable to make that satisfaction in our own persons or to deliver ourselves from the wrath of God, he has been pleased in his infinite mercy to give his only begotten son 
For our surety, who was made sin, became a curse for us, and in our stead, that he might make, make satisfaction to divine justice on our behalf. Uh, quote, unquote, this is the doctrine of vicarious or substitutionary atonement. You cannot state it more plainly. You cannot improve on it in the language of the canons. I'm not certain what they're referring to there. Our Lord Jesus Christ stood in the stead, in the place of those whom, for whom he died before the God, bar of God's justice. He represented them. He was their substitute in a legal sense, which is kind of, I don't know, Brian, my, my brain kind of has a, has a challenge about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, physically dying for us, such that we would not have to die. And as you're alluding to, so we would not have to die on the cross? Well, no. So we would not have to die physically like Jesus died physically? Well, no. So in what sense? Yeah, I, I, I struggle with that, Brian. Yeah, especially with Romans 6.23 saying, right, the wages of sin is death. And no doubt we could physically die if we commit a sin like drunk driving and we run off the road and crash and die. But no, that's talking about spiritual death. So we know that we do all, in fact, die when we sin. And it's only through baptism that we can be renewed, if you will, or, or at least saved from that spiritual death. And so as we move on now, we look at now what the Calvinist claims that this limited atonement accomplished. And Jeff, kind of like with you, as I read through some of this, they're just head scratchers. I'm not even 100% certain what some of these quotes are trying to say, but we can tell very quickly, like this first one, that it conflicts with what God's Word says. So for instance, they say, Christ purchased faith. So wrap your head around that concept, right? Christ purchasing faith, because the Bible's like, faith comes by hearing the word of God and so forth. Anyhow, they go on to say, he guaranteed by that purchase of faith that all for whom he died will also believe and will also lay hold personally and consciously on all the benefits of salvation that are in that death of Christ. So, you know, really, I guess it makes sense for them to kind of go down this path because when they believe that this purchase of faith causes those who are the elect to be irresistibly drawn to God, then in essence, you would have to almost believe that Christ caused this faith to exist in the hearts of those who are elect so once again, they're irresistibly drawn to the Lord. Um, just, it's a kind of a head scratcher because obviously the Bible says nothing like this at all. Uh, and we're going to get into some of the passages that they attempt to use to prove these theories, if you will. So let's move on now to the next quote. In addition to putting away the sins of the people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation. We'd actually agree with that, right? I mean, Christ's you know, death on the cross did give us the ability to be saved. No, no question about that. But then they go on to say, including faith, which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died, therefore guaranteeing their salvation. That's where it goes off the rails, right? So we kind of get a glimpse here of the reasoning behind, you know, the fourth and fifth tenets, you know, irresistible grace, 
which includes faith and perseverance of the saints, as Jeff mentioned earlier, which we'll go into more detail uh, in, in our next couple of podcasts. So here's the summary, really, of what they're saying in these quotes that we just read, and that is, uh, once again, a quote from, from them. All those blessings were once and for all time actually purchased, merited, obtained on the cross, and they belong to Christ and to all who were in Christ at the cross. All the saints that had gone before, all the elect who lived at the time of Christ's earthly sojourn, whether they were conscious children of God or whether they still had to be converted, and all the people of God who were still to be born at that time and all who are still to be born today, he was in their place. He was their representative. And for them, all he purchased once for all, all the blessings of salvation. Ooh, that's just a mouthful, isn't it, Jeff? And, you know, really, if you think about it, once again, they kind of have to go down this path. Once you start out by saying God only saved a few, we are incapable of doing good. Therefore, we have to rely on Christ to be irresistibly drawn to God. And as a result, all the elect don't have to worry because their salvation is guaranteed. Well, and that's a good point. And as you said, it, it kind of all starts off with the very first tenet of you know, total inherited depravity that we talked about a few podcasts ago. Because if if I am really totally incapable of doing anything at all good, at all, period, then yeah, it is totally upon God to do it all. Absolutely do everything for me because I'm I'm like a helpless little baby. I can't do anything. I can't feed myself, can't take care of myself. And so it's all on him to include, you know, almost like miraculously given faith or miraculously given belief. You know, if if I can't even believe, well, God has to do that for me too. I'm this helpless little baby. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is it's either to me comforting or terrifying, right? It might be comforting to you if you think, well, hey, I can't be lost, everything's great. Or it can be terrifying if you're like, well, wait, what if I'm not one of the elect? I can't do anything, you know? So, uh, yeah, some repercussions of believing that. Exactly. Well, and in, in, a, in a small practical sense, uh, how do you tell the difference? Because, you know, I, I've, I've interacted with some people that will say, you know, here's this person, you know, professes Jesus is his personal savior, goes down the road a number of years, live, you know, conducts his life, right? And somewhat in harmony with that, and then gets tangled up in sin. You know, they would not say he fell away. They would say he never was saved to begin with. Well, how do you know? As you said, it's the terror, also the terror of not knowing whether you're one of them or not. Indeed, yes. I think that kind of takes us to a couple other, maybe one one other little quote, and then we'll kind of get into uh, some proof texts. Uh, there's uh, you know, a quote here that talks about, uh, neither are any other redeemed by Christ. And of course, talking about, you know, dying for the elect. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only and hence that's the that's the limited part uh that since you know god only picked certain people christ must have only died for him them uh and hence you know christ did not die for everyone because well that certainly would make no sense 
because they never, you know, not everyone uh, was picked. Yeah, and this is uh, an area as we get into, uh, as you mentioned, we're going to go into proof text, and then we're going to just see what does the Bible say, and that's the key point here, right? What does the Bible say? Right. And of course, what we'll be able to show is that this concept of it being limited and for the elect only is certainly fallacious. Well, and one of those uh, proof test texts is John seventeen nine. Uh, Jesus is, of course, this is after the uh, uh, the Passover supper, uh, and I think it's in the extended prayer that Jesus is offering to God, where he says, "I pray for them." Uh, of course, contextually referring to his disciples, um, yeah, but potentially others as well. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Uh, goes on uh, verse 20 and 21, for I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me, of course, that's like us today, through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and then a little bit further on, verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me. Uh, and so we have to, you know, uh, or what I should say, Calvinists, you know, look in this passage is, you know, Jesus only prayed for his disciples. Jesus only prayed for the believers. Jesus only prayed for, quote unquote, the elect. Uh, and yet even within the context here, for instance, uh, we have, you know, again, John 17, verse uh, 21, that this unity leads others to believe uh, that the world may believe in the world uh those in the world still uh, may believe and become christians you know become faithful and so even in this uh context uh, we see that jesus is not just praying for the elect but also praying for the rest of the world who would come to know him as well so th that particular verse is, is not real useful in terms of supporting their claim uh, we also got another verse uh, that, that sometimes is used. Um, Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28. Talking about, again, during the, the Lord's Supper, the, you know, uh, through the, uh, the unleavened bread, through the, through the vine that Jesus was using to institute what we would call the Lord's Supper. Uh, drink from it, all of you. Of course, he's talking to his disciples. At the time, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of his sins. Uh, similarly, all, back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, 11 and 12, uh, which is a you know, messianic uh, uh, prophecy. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he will bear their iniquities. Uh, continuing on, he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. And what Calvinists will often latch onto is that term many, uh, in the sense of, well, yes, Jesus died for many, but did not die for all. And of course, we can find other uh verses uh, in the uh, New Testament where you know jesus talks about you know laying down his life for the sheep and of course they'll they'll, they'll latch on to that but even in that context of, of john 10 uh, 14 through 15 you can, can kind of continue on down 
John 10, uh, verses 27 through 30, where Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. Hmm. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, my father who has you know, given them to me. And, and there's another aspect that the Calvinist might latch on to is it, that says, hey, see, God gave specifically individually individuals to Jesus. But the problem is, even in that context and others, that those who believe Christ's words are the ones who choose to listen to his voice. They're the ones who choose to follow him. They're the ones who will not perish. And, you know, we know that not every person on the planet across all time, you know, will believe and obey Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14. But, you know, this is a, a far cry from saying that Jesus only died for the elect and for none others. And Brian, I know we're going kind to of get a little bit later on. We'll, we'll talk more about this argument of quote unquote many versus all, because there are some verses that do affirm that Jesus died for all. Yeah, and, and to use this play on words, it's almost a play on words, right? Say many, well, it says many, not all. Uh, I would think most people who are debaters would say that's a pretty weak argument, right? To, to simply latch on to the word many. And not only that, but as you pointed out, to take it out of context. What is he saying when he uses the term many? Anyhow, uh, the good news is we have the Bible and as we've been pointing out all along and will continue to, is that it really matters what does the Bible teach, not what men think. And granted, they're referring to the Bible. We get that. But they're taking it out of context. And if you've listened to our podcast for a while, you'll know one of the things that we talk about. In fact, we did um, a, a series or, or at least one podcast, Jeff, on how to properly study the Bible. And one of those is considering the context of what's being said. So it's in the Bible, it's so critical that you never take a passage, for instance, one that just says, all you have to do is believe and nothing else is required in people's minds because that's all they look at is that one passage. But to properly harmonize what the scriptures say as a whole, you have to study what's being said across the New Testament, across the Bible, and once again, keep it in context with what's being said in that particular passage or the group of passages around the one that you're reading. And so when we look at what the Bible says about the sacrifice of Jesus, what the Bible makes clear is that when Jesus died on the cross, it was to reconcile all men to God, not to atone for the elect. Um, and the term atonement really is an Old Testament term, as we talked about early on, which identified the covering of sins under the old law. It is not a New Testament term. And what can cause some of this confusion is if you use the King James translation, those translators translated a Greek word katalage as atonement, which actually was a poor translation. Because if you look at every other translation, they correctly uh, translated as reconciliation. So, in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, um, what we see here is that, once again, Jesus, when he died on the cross, reconciled us all as sinners back to God if we follow the terms and conditions that he set forth. And when you look at the definition of this word reconciliation, 
It means restoration to the divine favor of God. So we know from passages like Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, it says that our sins separate us from God so that he will not hear our prayers and so forth. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he set forth the means once again that we might be restored to the divine favor, as this Greek word says, and reconciled us back to God. So one example of where we can see this clearly said is over in Colossians chapter 1. Jeff, you want to read that for us? So Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Sure. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this is a pretty powerful passage that teaches what the truth says, what the Bible says, as compared to these philosophies of Calvinism. So in verse 21, you know, it says, we alienated ourselves, we became enemies of God. Why? By our wicked works. However, once again, through the blood of the cross, verse 20, Jesus allowed us to not only be reconciled, but to have peace with God. So when you think about as a sinner, if you're wicked, well, you create a hostility between yourself and God. And verse 22 tells us that not only did Jesus die, but he gave us the ability once again to present ourselves as holy and blameless. How is that? Through the forgiveness of sins. But it's conditional. And that's what verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Not only continue in the faith, but to be grounded, to be steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so we have a responsibility there. And so as we can see, this directly conflicts with the idea that we are irresistibly drawn, that we uh, have no choice. Well, we have choice here, right? We can choose to do good or evil, and, and we see that throughout the scriptures. Now, moving on to the next thought and uh, the next thing we would like to refute from God's word, and that is that the terms vicarious and substitute that we looked at earlier are not used in the Bible, uh, nor is this man-made concept of Jesus dying in our place. So as we were touching on earlier, as you mentioned, Jeff, we all die spiritually when we sin, and we are made alive again and reconciled to God through baptism. And we can see this over in Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles handy as a listener, uh, if not, you could write it down. But if you have your Bible handy, turn over to Romans chapter 6, and you'll notice here that it says, beginning in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
So what it's saying here is much like Jesus physically died, buried, and then arose, we do the same spiritually. When we're baptized, we die to sin, and we arise, we resurrect, if you will, spiritually to walk in newness of life. In fact, it goes on, you'll notice in verse 6 to say, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So we are not freed from sin because Jesus died alone. We are freed from sin because we have died to sin through baptism. He goes on, verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then here goes on to talk about choice in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That's saying we have the choice to let sin reign or not. It has nothing to do with us being inherently evil. It has to do with the choice that we make. He says that you should obey it in its lust. So if you're giving in to your fleshly lusts and you're sinning, you've made a choice to do so. And then verse 13, to finish up, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so, Jeff, this whole section of scripture just talks about choice, 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 doesn't it? Yeah, indeed, it does. Uh, and certainly gives no uh, indication of you are making a free choice, but it isn't really a free choice because in the background, in the back of your mind, it's God sort of irresistibly pulling the strings, even though to you it appears like a free choice. Yeah, that that just kind of confuses me, quite frankly. And then, you know, kind of continuing on, uh, there's one one verse that I think is 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 very interesting uh, in the uh, for this concept of Jesus dying only for a few people. First uh, John chapter two verses one and two, where John through the Spirit writes, "My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation, which is a big word. We can talk about that in a few moments." The, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the, watch it, whole world. So there, you know, almost like in one verse, um, it talks about, you know, Jesus being a propitiation, which I looked that up. It's, you know, the act of gaining or regaining the favor of someone or regaining the goodwill of something, something uh, through some kind of uh, act, which we've, which we've mentioned. For not only us who have been saved, but also for the whole world. Again, uh, in a way that enables the whole world to be saved when they comply with what God has said we need to do. Yeah, I like how you pointed out the, the definition of propitiation. Because much like being reconciled, you know, brought back into favor with God, if you're irresistibly drawn and you can't help but do what's right, then what's there, why would you ever need to be restored to God? You would never be out of his favor if you were one of the elect, 
right? So anyhow, we can see a, a clear contradiction there. Right. Um, and this concept of, of God, which kind of goes back to our previous uh, podcast, God arbitrarily picking certain people. Uh, how about Acts 17.30? Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Which kind of sounds weird if he's commanding all men everywhere to repent, but he already knows he's picked a certain number of people that he's going to miraculously enable to repent. Why is he commanding everyone to repent? That, you know, sorry, makes no sense. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, again, which would put it at odds with the... Uh, a limited uh, atonement aspect. First uh, Timothy chapter two verse three, for this is for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Wait a minute, no, he doesn't. He only desires the elect to be saved. Ah. Verse four, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Uh, two chapters over, First Timothy 4, verse 10. To this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And finally, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, I guess I'd have to tear that verse out of my Bible if I was a Calvinist, because uh, he is willing that some perish, and willing that some don't come to repentance, because he's arbitrarily, through his sovereign grace, picked or unpicked, I guess I should say it differently. I guess if we're all born in sin, we're all lost unless he arbitrarily picks a few of us to come to repentance and not perish. Again, it just puts uh, a lot of different verses uh, at uh, contention or, or um, inconsistent, if you will, uh, if, uh, if the tenets of Calvinism are true. Yeah, and you'd almost have to say, you know, that the Calvinists would much prefer in Second Peter three nine that it say many and not all, right? Not willing that any should perish or many should perish, but that many should come to repentance. Uh, you're right; it just throws a monkey wrench in when it says all. And as we talked about in previous podcasts or in, in this series specifically, this would really make God an unjust God. You know, do you really want to accuse God of being unjust by only choosing to save certain people? I mean, then in essence, yes, we would be puppets, like you said earlier, right, Jeff? And so it just doesn't hold to who God is and his nature of wanting, desiring. In fact, uh, I'll encourage our listeners to go back to Ezekiel 18. Just read that entire chapter where God makes it clear he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but wants them to turn and to live. He wants all to live uh, and not die. Well, that doesn't sound like the Calvinist God, because according to them, God only wanted some, and therefore only elected some. Indeed. So I think, Brian, that brings us around to the final section of today's podcast, which we very often do in our podcasts, and that is bring to our listeners various questions that have been submitted to the website, that are related to the topic of the day. 
Yeah, so the first question will be for you, Jeff, from Forrest. And Forrest asks, does John 6.39 indicate limited atonement? So, Brian, would you go ahead and read, uh, let's say, John 6, beginning with verse 37 through roughly verse 40 to get the context. Yes, here it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Verse 40 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Thank you. Now, as we covered in our last podcast, you know, there certainly is a biblical concept of predestination, you know, of a selecting or giving or predestining that God does for people for salvation. But as we tried to point out in our last podcast, that is that uh, selecting, if you will, or the giving to Jesus is not of specific individuals, but rather a class of individuals. Uh, you know, essentially those that have a humble, contrite spirit, you know, who are willing to submit themselves to God. You know, those who will exercise their free will and voluntarily come to Jesus. And of those, you know, he certainly have the assurance that he will not reject them or reject us, uh, that they will receive uh, everlasting life. So I think the key point to be made is this passage really doesn't address the subject of Jesus dying, uh, the sense of limited atonement, dying only for those specifically selected and predestined. As Brian, you you know, we were pointing out earlier, he died for the sins of all humanity for all time. But uh, Brian, as you pointed out, that death and the resulting forgiveness of sin is conditional on something man needs to do on man's obedient response or on man's you know compliance with what god wants us to do to receive the benefit of jesus atoning death or his death on the cross and you know i, I say atoning death you know i, I looked up a couple different definitions and at least in today's vernacular uh the the, the concept of atoning or atoning death um seems to have just become synonymous you know with jesus death on the cross um, and that that through this process he has you know resulted in us having the forgiveness of the sin of sin. So you know we you still may see that term uh, a lot. Any uh, any comments on that one? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because there are many elements that you know we see what I like to call shades of the truth in all of these false doctrines. And Calvinism is no different. You know, when you think about people saying, "Well, Jesus paid the price for sins," Jesus you know, bore our sins uh, when he died on the cross. All these are statements that are actually found in the scriptures. And, but they twist it to meet their false doctrine. So what we do know that the scriptures teach us is that Jesus was what's called an unblemished lamb, right? He had no sin. So to think that he could, for instance, take all our sins in his body and be this sinful sacrifice uh, can't be true because the Bible says he's an unblemished lamb. He was perfect. 
but he did pay the price for sin. In other words, he died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. And so what could be confusing, your point about atonement and some of these other terms, is while the basic definition of these terms can be true, what they do is twist it to fit their false narratives or false doctrines. And in this case, that Jesus died in their place so they wouldn't have to die, and he died in the place of those who are elect only. Well, the scriptures don't teach either of those concepts. So we just have to be careful and really make sure that we're using biblical terms in biblical ways, right? Right. Well, and coming back around to something I mentioned earlier, and we get these questions submitted to the website regarding, well, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, didn't he pay the price for my sin, my past sins, my current sins, and my future sins? And in a sense, he did because he died for the sins of all mankind. You know, sins that are past, present, future, died for all of them. And so all of them can be forgiven. But once again, it's not unconditional uh, that, yes, indeed, Christ did die for my future sins, but it is still conditional. Uh, and that's where, you know, we talk about, you know, you know, dead of sin, et cetera. Uh, where people sometimes get confused when they say, well, if Jesus, you know, paid for my sins and paid the debt of my sins in a financial kind of transaction and all my future sins have already been paid for, then I don't need to worry about it. It's like, well, hold on. <laughs> yeah, that's taking it too far. <laughs> well, exactly. And it's one thing to say, hey, forgiveness of sins is available. And it's another thing to say, and yet there's still something that you still need to do. You still need to believe. You still need to repent you know, change your belief, you know, stay away from sin, repent of sin when you do sin, uh, etc. It's, again, it's back to the, is it all on God? Or does humanity have a part, albeit a relatively minor, small part to pay, but still a part to play? Absolutely, yep. So I think that kind of takes us to the, looks like the second of the two questions we've got to go uh, through today. Uh, this one comes from Solomon, interesting first name. Um, he writes in, quote, There are some people who strongly believe that God predestined everything. What is happening from the day of God's creation is something which has already been planned from eternity. There are also other people who believe the opposite. I also believe the latter position. Now, if predestination holds true... Why are the so-called unbelievers judged to go to hell? If I am not an elect, I will go to hell. Why is lack of faith a cause for joining hell? Yeah, this to me just illustrates the confusion with Calvinism in general. And Solomon asked a great question, you know, if predestination is true, what, what this does, and you just mentioned it, right, is that it puts it all on God. It gives us no responsibility Faith, you might as well throw it out the window unless you believe, as the Calvinists believe, that Jesus purchased this faith, as they say, so that for those that are irresistibly drawn, they can't help but have faith. That just doesn't make any sense. And I think we would all agree we would like to be responsible for ourselves. So, as we've been talking about, you know, the idea that God has predetermined or predestined the fate of us all is based on this false doctrine of Calvinism. And as you pointed out, Jeff, a little while ago, yeah, God put together a system before creation that would allow a class of people 
who are obedient to the will he has given us to be saved. That's what he predetermined and predestined, not who would be saved and who would be cast into hell, if you will. And so one term that we use from time to time on our podcast here is that God has made us free moral agents, which just simply means that God freely allows us to choose whether to do good or evil. And there are many passages that teach us that. Let's just look at a couple. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Very simple statement, but really sums it all up, doesn't it? God shows no partiality. If you believe in Calvinism, then you're saying God does show partiality. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, where it talks about the righteous judgment of God, Notice what it says in verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who, by patient continuance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, it says. What will happen to that person? It says indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek, which just means all men. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. Once again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So this goes along with many other statements, right? Like 2 Corinthians 5.10 that says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we've done in our bodies, right? Whether good or evil. So many, many passages that show God is just. If we're faithful to the law of Christ, we'll be given eternal life. But if we're not faithful, we will suffer eternal punishment. That's why we have a heaven and a hell. And as we just touched on also, God loves everyone. God doesn't want any to be lost. And so anyhow, we'll, we'll stop there. There are many other passages that could be read. But, but Jeff, once again, the scriptures are pretty clear on this matter. Uh, indeed. Well, and, and you, know, you mentioned modern society. I, I can't help but think of, you know, people who advocate this thing called victimhood. You know, I am just a victim of my culture, or I'm just a victim because of my skin color, or I'm just a victim whatever. And, you know, if I'm a victim, it's like, well, I'm powerless to do anything about it. You know, I have to rely on someone else to do it all for me. And in, in, in essence, that's almost like a, a secular equivalent of uh, Calvinism, where it takes away my ability to, you know, have any sort of uh, role uh, in these kinds of things. Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, once again, it depends on how you look at it, right? So if you are, because of victimhood, not accountable in your own eyes, that may be comforting to you because it's like, well, I can't help myself, so God won't hold me accountable for that. Whereas others would say, no, no, no. I want, if I'm going to be rewarded or punished, I want to have control over that. And oh, by the way, I don't consider myself a victim. Yeah, I might have been raised in tough circumstances. I might have a propensity, if you will, because of that, to do good or bad things. But at the end of the day, I get to choose. And it's going to be based on my own conduct. And in that sense, it's comforting to those. And, and empowering as well. Because, you know, honestly, if, if I believed in this, this Calvinism kind of thing, it's like, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of sit around and, you know, I'm going to live, live my life the way I want to live it. And, you know, if, if I'm one of the elect, at some point, God's going to somehow miraculously zap me and, and I'll believe uh, and I'll be okay. 
it's like mm, again puts it all on god and, and and none on man which is uh certainly not the truth now having said all that when we consider you know from the perspective of grace and everything that god has you know, done uh in terms of as you said the plan of salvation from all eternity you know all his interactions under the old testament the bringing of his son Jesus' death on the cross, you know, revelation of the New Testament will for us. I mean, you know, God has done, you know, 99.9% of, of the heavy lifting, so to speak, or all the heavy lifting, and yet leaves that little bit, relatively speaking, a little bit for us to uh, to do, to to respond. Brian, any other, any other thoughts before we uh, wrap it for the day? Uh, no, no, good point. I think that summarizes it well. Okay. So as we always like to do, we're ending our podcast with an invitation to our listeners to come to our website at biblequestions.org, where we have a considerable amount of material on the subject that we've been talking about today. If you go under our topics menu item, uh, P for predestination, which we talked uh, quite a bit about today, including a five-part series on God's choices. Uh, B for blood of Jesus, to understand what uh, Jesus effectively did on the cross, you know, through the shedding of his blood. Uh, N for nature of man, kind of going back to the inherited depravity. And more broadly, C for Calvinism. And even more broadly than that, S for salvation. A lot of good material. Once again, that we would encourage our listeners to avail themselves of, read, study, and more importantly, not just study the material, but study the scriptures that are associated with that material. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.